Hello, everybody, and welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast. This is Peter Ravella, co-host of the show. And this is Tyler Buckingham, the other co-host. There are thousands of things that happen on the American Shoreline. And, you know, Tyler, we, we try to cover that on Coastal News today. Uh, and occasionally we get our hands on a special guest on the American Shoreline Podcast that can talk about uh, so many different and unique uh, sectors of what happens on the American Shoreline, Tyler. So I'm really glad that we have found and having back on the American Shoreline Podcast Network, Michael Carr. Uh, Michael, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's very pleasant to be here. Well, Tyler, I just want to tick off a few things of why I think this is Michael's a great guest for us to have. Uh, Michael Carr, United States Coast Guard officer for 10 years. He's a veteran of the Navy Dive School. Uh, he served in the Merchant Marine for another eight years. He was in the United States Army as a boat driver for 15 years. Uh, he's taught at the Mar many of the maritime academies in the U United States. And uh, he is now the CEO and owner of Hayes Gray Maritime Consulting, a great firm that provides consulting training and maritime services on the American shoreline. This is a guy who's been around and seen it all and done more than most of us uh, do in a lifetime. And so from Port St. Lucie, Florida, we are really happy to have on the American Shoreline podcast, Michael Carr. Welcome to the show. Well, Thank you. That was a very nice introduction. You're very kind. Well, we look forward to getting into it with Michael here. Uh, we've we've lined up some interesting items to explore uh, and learn about, and uh, I'm really looking forward to it. But before we get into it, let's have a quick word from our sponsors. The American Shoreline Podcast Network and CoastalNewsToday.com are brought to you by LJA Engineering with 28 offices along the Gulf Coast. The folks at LJA Engineering are at the top of the craft in the areas of coastal restoration, coastal infrastructure, rivers and channels, numeric modeling, disaster recovery, and design and construction oversight. And now they have a brand new coastal resiliency department headed up by our very own Peter Ravella. Check them out at LJA.com. We are also brought to you by Coastal Transplants. Coastal Transplants prides itself on offering specific environmental and horticultural expertise with practical first-hand knowledge of all aspects of coastal revegetation projects. Their high-quality native and wetland plants, extensive agricultural and horticultural experience, along with their skilled and respectful crews, make Coastal Transplants your one-stop solution for restoring coastal ecology of your barrier island community. Learn more at CoastalTransplants.com. And we are brought to you by the Dune Science Group. Did you know that fiberglass is one of the strongest and most durable building materials in the world? That it is resistant to deterioration caused by UV light and salt water? Well, the Dune Science Group does. They offer a full slate of solutions for dune walkovers and boardwalks that are made of fiberglass and built to last. They can handle your dune walkover project from beginning to end, including permitting, design, and construction of the strongest and most durable dune walkover on the market. Learn more at the dunesciencegroup.com. Well, Michael, a jack of all trades on the shoreline. And I think what I wanted, I think what Tyler and I wanted to do was, uh, was take a spin around your career, your perspective, uh, the insights that you have in your many decades of experience uh, on the American shoreline, and in particular, your work in the United States Coast Guard. Uh, you know, I would say, kick it off, give our, give our audience a little sense of what your responsibilities were in the Coast Guard, if we want to start there. 
Yes. Okay, good. So I graduated from the Coast Guard Academy a long time ago, back in 1977. And uh, I went to a ship. I went to Alaska and served on a buoy tender for two years. And then I went to Navy dive school. Coast Guard has divers, and they use the Navy dive school for training. And then was assigned to uh, a dive team for another six years um, that responded to oil spills, chemical spills, search and rescue. We pretty much did anything that Coast Guard needed done that would require a diver um, and uh, did a lot of interesting things before um, getting out and then going into the Merchant Marine. But uh, um, it was 10 years of of pretty much uh, diving and uh, search and rescue operations while in the Coast Guard. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I've just got to say that uh, we are, Michael is a modest uh, man, but he has been a participant in, I believe you were like one of the the seminal members of some type of elite response team. Is that right, Michael? Well, yeah, you're very kind. And I, I, I want to, I should pause to say I, I'm lucky because I, worked with a lot of great people in the Coast Guard and, you know, it's always a team effort. So I, everyone wants to put in 110%. So I, I don't want to present myself as anything more than just one member of big team, but um, the Coast Guard did in the seventies um, develop a, a, a dive team that was part of what the Coast Guard called their, their strike force, which was, um, three teams on the East Coast, the West Coast, and the Gulf that responded to oil and hazardous chemical spills. A lot of good equipment, a lot of excellent training, and we worked with EPA uh, and states to respond. If you remember, you know, there was a period of time where oil spills were occurring too frequently, and we had a lot of chemical spills that were impacting the environment. So we responded to those in doing cleanup and mitigation and uh, um you know, trying to mitigate the problems caused by those. Well, Michael, you're, uh, I just have to say that we're, we've got a real badass professional here. Like the real McCoy, um, has been around the block professionally. Now you, you were telling your story that you, uh, uh, you, you go, you're a young man, you go to the Coast Guard Academy. What, what drew you to the Coast Guard Academy? Well, if you think back, so I went there in 1973. If you can think back that far, it was the winding down of the Vietnam War era. Um, and there was a lot, a lot of struggles going on in this country. But um, so it was tough to figure out if you're a young person, I think, what to do. Um, and my father was in the Navy and I, I saw how much the Navy did for him and how much he contributed um, to, I think, our country by being in the Navy. So I was just drawn to that. And, uh, you know, the Coast Guard uh, is a great organization. They do so many things and the search and rescue aspect and the, you know, going out to help people and being one of the good guys is just very appealing. So, uh, it, um, you know, that's, that's what drew me in. And uh, you then, I'm sorry, Peter, to just, I'm just interested in these early days here. Of I am uh, too. Uh, how your kind of attachment to the sea? I mean, were you were you drawn to the water uh, before your professional relationship with the Coast Guard? Yeah, I think I probably was. Um, I would. My family always spent summers in New England. That's where my family was from. So 
you know, going to the seashore and, uh, you know, if you go to New England, the, the seafaring tradition up there is pretty strong. So I think a combination of my father having been in the Navy and then the New England seafaring tradition had a had an impact on me. It, uh, I'm pretty sure that's what drew me in that, you know, that direction. Michael, this is a this a, you know you've been sort of on both sides of of the equation when it comes to shipping and ship safety as a Coast Guard officer for ten years, a emergency strike force diver. Uh, you've been a merchant, spent years in the merchant marine, <clears throat> and we're talking about you know the role of the Coast Guard in in safety along uh, in the ports and harbors of America and on board these ships. Um, can you share some insights, having been on both sides of the equation as a Coast Guardsman and also in the Merchant Marine? What's the status of our ship safety programs in in America and uh, our ship inspections and that kind of thing? What can you? Uh, what did you learn yeah. then, and what do you what are you hearing now? Yeah, so yeah, to sort of paint the big picture is, you know, the Coast Guard is required by federal law to do ship inspections and to. Um, what's referred to as facilitate commerce. You know, the Coast Guard is supposed to ensure that ships are safe and that the crew are well-trained and things are done properly so that commerce can flow without accidents and uh, uh, deaths and sinkings and whatnot. Um, and that, that's the Coast Guard's mandate. So they're, they're, they're looking at making, making the, uh, the commerce work. Now, from the commercial end of it, it's not always looked at that way. Oftentimes, businesses, they're, you know, they want to make money, they want revenue, and things that uh, slow down revenue or that the companies feel, whether it's true or not, slow down their ships and making, uh, you know, runs and, and making money, um, often inhibit the Coast Guard from make, doing their inspection. Sometimes there's a tug of war, the Coast Guard you know, sees a ship that needs repair and then the company says, well, maybe we don't need to repair it this year. Couldn't you delay it, this requirement till next year? And there's a struggle there. And it's it's one of the, the issues that's always been there and will continue to be there. The, the thing that bothered me was that having been in the Coast Guard and then serving in the Merchant Marine, I, I always felt that the Coast Guard were the good guys. They're there to protect the seamen and make sure ships don't sink and people don't drown. And so if the Coast Guard says, you need to, you need to do X, Y, Z, shipping companies should step up and say, you're absolutely right, we need to do X, Y, Z, and we're going to get it done today. Um, but that doesn't always happen. And your your listeners might remember, since it was so recently, that El Faro sinking, the um, container ship that sank off the Bahamas a couple of years ago. And, you know, that ship had a lot of problems, a lot of structural and repair problems and a lot of issues that hadn't been resolved. Um, and that probably contributed or did contribute to that vessel going down and her crew drowning. So I, I think the big picture is you, you need to do what's right and you can't cut corners and the Coast Guard should be viewed as the good guys trying to keep everyone safe. Um, but the Coast Guard's these days is drawn in so many different directions. They're part of Homeland Security now, so they have law enforcement duties, they have military security duties, they as well as inspection, as well as search and rescue, ice ice patrols, it goes on and on, and there's just not enough resources for the Coast Guard to do all of that. So the inspection part of it, you know, probably isn't being done to the extent that the Coast Guard would like to 
to see it being done. Definitely a theme, I think, Michael, we're going to have uh, on this pod is is funding and where our priorities lie. And um, it's clear from your career that you have, uh, you know, you you strongly believe in the uh, advancement of, of safety and keeping people uh, safe. And I know that a good chunk of our listeners are people who either recreationally or commercially uh, fish or are otherwise offshore. And one of the things we discussed yesterday is that you have a PSA for uh, these people regarding wearing uh, life jackets. And I just thought this was so interesting. What What's going on here with uh, the importance of PFDs, especially in cold water? Yes. So there seems to be some emotional or um, psychological issue with people being able to come to terms with wearing a PFD. And I, I think it's it's a hurdle that we need to overcome because we can we we have people drowning fishermen and even recreational boaters falling overboard and drowning. And then if they had been wearing a PFD, then they would have stayed afloat. They probably would have been recovered and and likely would be alive. But one thing's pe- one thing people don't realize is that when you fall overboard into water, and you don't even have to have it be cold water, you can be have it be just mildly chilling water. Your body goes as an immediate reflex where it starts gasping for air, and often what happens, and if the water is very cold, you really start gasping for the first minute you're in the water. You're going into sort of shock, and if you haven't seen this firsthand then you don't really believe it happens. You think, oh, I'll fall in the water and it'll be like a swimming pool and then someone will come get me. But it's not at all what happens. And so um, people swallow it. They fall in. It's cold or mildly cold. They start hyperventilating. They they end up taking water in because it's never flat calm. There's always some sort of chop. And they they, they gasp. They take in water. And then they, um, they start choking. And pretty soon, you know, within a minute or two, uh, they've drowned. So one, the first thing is that psychologically people have to admit, I think, that falling overboard is likely to lead to their death and, and accept that. So it's an emotional acceptance that there is risk involved. And then saying, okay, I don't want to die. I don't want to leave my spouse and family behind. I'm going to wear a PFD. And in years gone by, maybe people said I would wear a PFD, but – you know, they're so big and they're so cumbersome and they don't fit. And I can't, the justification a while back was I can't do what I need to do wearing a PFD because it gets in the way. And sort of like the people saying, I can't wear a seatbelt because it's too uncomfortable, realizing that without it on, they're going to die if they get in an accident. So at the same mental block. But nowadays, PFDs are light. You don't even feel the inflatable ones. You can't even tell you're they're wearing cool. them. They're cool. They're very cool. Yeah. So if I think it's the same issue we have with PFDs as the issue we had back in the 60s and 70s when seatbelts were put in cars. And I remember people say, oh, I'm not going to wear that damn thing. It's too restrictive. And they would come up with excuses. What if I drive off the road into a pond and I can't get it undone? I'll drown. And 
it wasn't a realistic scenario. It was just a mythical way of saying, I don't want to wear it. So what am I trying to say? I think everyone that works out on deck or goes out on a boat has to do a risk assessment and say, you know what? I accept the fact that this is a risky endeavor. And if I fall overboard and I don't stay afloat, it is highly likely that I will drown. And so I should wear a PFD. It's the adult mature thing to do. And we need to talk about that more um, so that it becomes acceptable to wear PFDs. And as I mentioned earlier, there's so many of them these days that uh, are, you know, they they look badass. Good. They were stylish. They're stylish. <laughs> There's no excuse anymore. They're small. They're not in the way. They're made yeah, out of like right. cool high vis material. They look yeah. like a climbing apparatus or a parachute. They're they're you know very they're very cool. And I should also point out uh, that they are, uh, I believe. Uh, Michael, you said on yours, you've got like an automatic little light device, I think is what you said, uh, and a beacon or something. Yeah. So I have a PFD, an inflatable PFD that I, I wear every time I go. So I drive a dive boat part time these days. And when I go out, I put that PFD on as soon as I park my car in the driveway at the marina, I put it on and it stays on till I get back to the car. Um, and it's got a, EPIRB attached to it that's registered. Uh, I've got a, a light stick and a, a flashlight, a strobe attached to it. It's all very neat and compact. I put it on and I, I wear it during the entire trip. And I mentioned to the divers and the crew on board, you know, we, we have to do the Coast Guard briefing. And I mentioned to them that, you know, falling overboard, even though it's a dive boat and you're going to intentionally jump off it with your dive gear on, when you're not doing that and you're moving around the boat, you need to be aware of handholds and where you are and what's going to happen if you fall over. Um, And I I think I want to just stress that for a second. If you're wearing a PFD, it also focuses your mind on thinking about, aha, I need to think about staying on this boat, uh, holding on to things, being aware of the environment, not just acting like I'm in my backyard. So it it helps you focus on your activity. and it sets a good example. And if you're the, I'll just go off on an offshoot here. If you're the leader, if you're the captain of the boat or you're the owner operator of the boat, you're setting the right example for everyone else on board. And people always look, who's ever in charge, they look at and they're going to emulate that. So if you're cavalier and careless and not professional, everyone else is going to take the same attitude. They go, well, the captain's not doing anything about that. So it can't be important. So right. uh, there's more to this than just the physical piece of equipment. But anyway, the I, I see we see it all the time. If you read Coast Guard reports, people lost overboard, never recovered, uh, probably drowned or they did drown, and maybe um, they would have been found if they'd been had a PFD on. So and still breathing. Uh, well, and still Michael, breathing. it sounds like they. <laughs> They did a good job training you at the United States Coast Guard Academy and in your career as a Coast Guard officer, I tell you, it sunk in. And all you people out there who boat and enjoy the shoreline, listen to Michael. He's telling you the truth. Wear a damn PFD when you're on your boat. Uh, Michael, but I think that 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 example of the individual risk that we all take when we're on and around the water uh, in contrast with the institutional role that the Coast Guard plays 
you'd mentioned El Faro and the sinking of the El Faro in Hurricane Joaquin. And for, for listeners, longtime listeners of the American Shoreline Podcast Network, you might remember Michael was on the Ship to Shore podcast, which is hosted by Bob Frump, our really good friend. Bob, by the way, says hello. Was on a call with oh, him good. yesterday. Uh, he's doing great. Um, but Bob is the author, was journalist with the Philadelphia Inquirer, quote, Inquirer, author of several books on ship sinkings and the role of the Coast Guard. I mean, this this series is really great. Uh, you can find it on Amazon.com if you look up uh, Bob Front. But the book about the El Faro is called The Captains of, Th- of Thor, What Really Caused the Loss of the SS Faro in Hurricane Joaquin. Uh, you were involved, I think, in, in, in some way in the investigation of that accident, weren't you? And could you fill our audience a little bit in a little bit about right. the what happened in that you'd mentioned the ship was in bad shape. I mean, yes. Yeah, what so happened I, here? What happened? Yeah. Well, so I attended um, a majority of the hearings that the Coast Guard held with the National Transportation Safety Board after the El Faro um, tragedy. And we as a country should be really thankful that the Coast Guard and the NTSB, the National Transportation Safety Board, are empowered to hold hearings because the only way we would ever find out what really happened in accidents is by these impartial uh, institutions, the Coast Guard and NTSB, holding hearings, gathering information, having the power to subpoena witnesses, um, and with, with no mission, or the only mission being, to find the truth. So I went to the hearings because I very much wanted to hear was said, and to hear the the uh, investigators quiz all the appropriate parties, and um, so I went to them. They were held up in uh, Jacksonville, Florida. I, I sat there day after day, hours on end, taking notes. And Bob Frump was there. I sat with Bob, and we would compare notes at the end of the day and throughout our uh, uh, time there. And it was fascinating to me that the 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 aspects of it that. It wasn't just a ship sailing into a hurricane. It was a cumulative effects of years and years of um, the El Faro and her sister ships not having been taken care of properly, having a lot of mechanical and structural issues, having the company constantly uh, uh, trying to push back against the Coast Guard when the Coast Guard would, would try and get them to maintain the vessels properly, a lot of lobbying by um, – corporations to not have to conform to new regulations um, and being and those ships being run um, far past their lifespan they were over 40 years old in order for the company to keep making money it was a very lucrative run between Jacksonville and Puerto Rico um, and there was a lot of problems with crewing the vessels and how the company that owned them hired people and promoted them and trained them and all of that was brought out in the hearings which painted the a realistic and accurate picture of what really went went wrong. I think I'm sure the company would like to just have everyone think, "Oh, it was an act of God. The vessel sailed under a hurricane." But it, there was much more to that. Um, and Bob, let me just, let me, let me yeah. interject a couple of facts, yeah. and I want you to pick up the story. The El Faro, uh, owned by the Sea Star Line. Uh, Built in 1973, the accident, the sinking of the ship was in 2015. Uh, 
it's a 31,000 uh, ton vessel, about 790 feet long. So this is a pretty big ship. And she had 33 crew members on board the day she went down. Uh, Michael, how many people survived that sinking? And, and why does this sinking tell us something about our system of ship safety in America? Right. So the, the tragedy is all 33 crew on board perished. Um, nobody, there was no one recovered. Um, one, one crew member was found floating in an emergent suit, but the Coast Guard um, didn't recover him because they were, uh, got, they found someone and then they were diverted to another piece of wreckage. And then when they went back to try and recover him, uh, they couldn't find him again. And he, he was already deceased, but they, they didn't pull him in the helicopter initially because they wanted to go check this other sighting. Um, so, you know, a huge tragedy. 33 mariners died um, unnecessarily. I, you can say it pretty much unequivocally. It didn't, that accident did not have to happen. It was not an act of God. It was a uh, human error and a, and a huge uh, uh, chain of events that did not have to happen. Now, I'll add to this. The, the big picture is we, we can never predict the future. We like to think that, you know, you can structure your work day and you're going to get up and do this at eight o'clock and that at nine o'clock and go home and whatever. And in our little world, that's, that's our control. We like to feel we're in control, but we're not. There's a, we can make plans, but we have to be flexible and adaptable to changes. And the route that the El Faro took from Jacksonville to Puerto Rico, there are options other than taking the track that they took, which the hurricane was approaching when they when the ship departed Jacksonville. But the captain was reluctant to take an alternate route because the company was so fixated on timeliness and arrival and profits that the longer route, which wasn't really that much longer, going down the Florida Straits, another day and a half, he was the captain was very reluctant to take that because the company frowned on it. So instead mm. of rewarding the captain, if the captain had taken that route, you know, rewarding him by saying, good, you're being you're thinking ahead, you're taking you're being conservative, you're realizing that, you know, hurricane forecasts have a, a margin of error. He didn't do that. The captain didn't do that alternate route because he knew the company would say, why are you doing that? And he stuck to this shortest route that would take him very close to a hurricane that was not following a very um, uh, predictable path. And we ended up having, you know, tr this tragedy. So um, um, it, it's our human behavior and what we decide to value and not value. And if you want to be really blunt about it, it's, it's almost saying we don't value human life. We value timeliness and profits over human life. Uh, and I don't think that's a far-fetched um, no. analysis of this. Let me ask you if the, uh, so you mentioned the Coast Guard inquiry uh, in conjunction with the National Transportation Safety Board. You attended these hearings. Uh, was the cause of the accident fairly accounted for in your opinion? I, it, it was. At the final report, which was very lengthy and very in-depth, I think, and I've read it and I have copies of it and read through it and discussed it with Bob Frump at length, it, it addresses uh, all of the issues um, that, that we can, realizing that, um, you know, there, there's some communications from the bridge that we don't have because the, the voyage data recorder didn't record everything. It was 
but it recorded most of the conversations in the last day and it had a lot of information about the vessel speed and direction so i you know we can rec- we've recreated it we being the coast guard and the ntsb and it, it if when you read through it it paints a very good picture of, of what happened and the issues and problems so yes i think we know why she went down and um we really, you know, I said to Bob afterwards, as well as the friends that I have teaching at Maritime Academies, this accident should be a, a course. It should be a full semester long course for every um, everyone, every uh, cadet midshipman uh, to analyze this to learn from it um, and not something that's just put on a shelf somewhere and people uh, forget about it. Well, it certainly raises the importance of uh, maintenance and uh, especially with these vessels that we that are asked to make these runs uh, often going through you know perhaps not hurricanes but going through uh, serious weather um, I'm I'm interested you know Michael uh, the uh, in the news of late we have seen some beautiful white ships sailing uh, into New York uh, Harbor and into Los Angeles Harbor, uh, the U.S. Naval uh, hospital ships. Um, and I, I asked, hey, do you, hey, Michael, do you have a take on these hospital ships? And you said, oh, yeah, I do. So uh, kind of a, tell, tell us about tell us a little bit about these vessels and your thoughts on them. OK, so the, the ships were were built back in the 80s. They were they were um, built out of former um, oil tanker hulls that were then refurbished, and they took existing existing hull and made these two big, beautiful hospital ships that could go to war zones and provide, you know, emergency services for military personnel. And um, when they're not being used for that, so that was their primary intent. When they're not being used in war zones, they would sit in their home ports of San Diego and uh, Baltimore and Norfolk and in a caretaker status, meaning there's no one on board other than a crew, mariners, a skeleton crew that perform maintenance and security and basically keep the ship, you know, ready to go in, in the need. But so then when the need comes and someone rings the bell and says, we need you, you have to then get all the, the hundreds of uh, corpsmen and doctors and nurses on board. You have to, you know, fire the ship up and get everything going and energize it and get underway. And so it's a big operation to do that. And in the years, months and years that they sit at the dock when they're not needed, uh, it still takes a lot of money to keep them updated, to keep them in repair and good shape. Just because the ship isn't running doesn't mean it doesn't, it's not like a car you park in your park driveway and you just leave it there. It's a lot of systems, the fresh water, the fuel, electronics and everything that need to be updated and run and fuel filters changed and pipes cleaned, et cetera. So it takes a lot of money to do that. And we, as a society, we are often reluctant to, to apportion money for that. We wanted something new and glitzy and uh, the boat's not being used. So it's often um, not given the funding that's needed. And then boom, we get the coronavirus. Oh my God, we need these ships. But Guess what? One of them's in the shipyard getting a lot of work done, um, and you can't just immediately. Uh, it's not like a fire truck sitting there ready to go all the time. Um, so they're beautiful ships. They, as I think I mentioned to you before, they, they, they emotionally they make us. I think 
they um, they make us very uh, excited that we have the capability um, to to go and 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 help people. And when the ships have gone, uh, they have gone to places other than war zones in the past for humanitarian aid. Um, and they went to Puerto Rico last year after the hurricane. It's very emotionally. It's like this is great. We're the good guys. We're here to help. But to do that, to have that big white ship with the red cross show up, in between times, it takes money. And we have to be willing to put the money into that and not cry about, oh, our, our budget's too big, we can't afford things. It's, um, it's necessary, and we need to realize that and to accept that. Um, and hopefully after the coronavirus uh, situation is done and over with, we'll see the value of these ships and we'll we'll put money into them to keep them functioning. Uh, the, this way, I think we've got, do we have two of these things? I think we've got the UNS, UNNS, the United States Naval Ship, the Comfort, and, and the we Mercy. also have the Mercy, Correct. I think. Is, is that what we've got? And which one of those just sailed into New York Harbor in this earlier this week uh, so for the, the virus the, pandemic? Yeah, response? so the... The Comfort went to New York, and the Mercy went up to, uh, I believe, San Francisco. As, as you know, you're talking about, again, kind of the financial pressures that exist in shipping, both, that say, in the Pharaoh example, a captain who did not take the safer route uh, because the company culture would have punished him for being a day and a half later than he should have been. Uh, they sailed it into a hurricane and 33, as, as you said, were lost. And then here in the naval example, uh, these ships that are that are essentially not mothballed, but parked. Um, these are these are rarely significant ships, as you said. Um, is that one of the frustrations in your career as a Coast Guardsman and in the Merchant Marine is uh, just sort of the institutional reluctance, unwillingness uh, to take care of the equipment that we have that it, it, or to give in to financial and commercial pressure. It, it, did you see that it's a great happen question. in your career? And did it get any better in the tenure? <laughs> that, <laughs> did we, yeah. Are we getting any better at that problem? <laughs> well, so I've seen it while in the Coast Guard, in the Merchant Marine, and in the army and it, there's slight slight little uh, nuances to this so the coast guard um is realizing what happens because when ships are not maintained properly because they have to go out and rescue people all the time the coast guard was always extremely uh conscientious about maintaining their vessels and setting the standard and not cutting corners it was always like do it right the first time and keep the vessels as they should be better than they should be because these are the vessels that have to be able to go out and save people. And so you can't have a Coast Guard vessel breaking down. That would just be unheard of. But the Coast Guard also is has always has a very limited budget. So the Coast Guard's always like trying to find ways to do it more efficiently, um, you know, being very creative with the limited budget they have to get to do it right. And it, it, just, it was always a struggle. Uh, I think from my years in the Coast Guard, it was always it was to the detriment of the Coast Guard because we we could have done a lot more and done it better if we didn't have to always be fighting over getting more funding. And it, it, that was a 
an issue within, you know, um, the government. Then the Merchant Marine, when I sailed with them, it, it, it was always a struggle. There was, you know, um, doing what needed to be done to pass Coast Guard inspections. But there were times when things should have been done because it was the right thing to do. Or if it wasn't done, it could lead to bigger problems. And it was delayed or put off or we'll do that the next shipyard period. And um, I never worked for a company that was really egregious. But, you know, there are companies that instead of fixing rust will, you know, epoxy over them. And instead of uh, replacing firefighting foam when it expires, they'll, you know, they'll wait for another six months and that sort of thing because they're just trying to um, slide right along what I would call that, right along the line of, of doing the right thing or not doing the right thing. Um, my issue with it always was that, you know, you, you save a dollar today, but if your ship catches on fire because you're, firefighting system is not up the standards and you lose the whole ship then that dollar you saved today you've now lost 300 million dollars because your ship just went down so you know we we tend as human beings i think have this inability often to see past the momentary event and it's almost like this wall street approach to life which is we just live from one quarter to the next and the Bernie Madoff approach of I'm always going to get you money. So don't worry about whether it's right or wrong. Right. Uh, and we need to be more, we need to temper ourselves and say, you know, let's do the right thing now because I don't want people to die. And sure, maybe well, we won't make as much money next quarter, but you know, maybe our ships will be floating and uh, uh, you know, it's the right thing to do. And it, it, it's tough because you need Whoever's at the top running the show has to have a moral ethical code that allows them to install mm. that corporate culture. So, right. um, yeah, it's it's a challenge. It always is. It's a challenge. And I think, you know, the COVID-19 pandemic, the coronavirus uh, is raging in America now. We're starting to see the numbers uh, increase all around the country. And in some sense, uh what you just outlined are sort of incapacity or unwillingness to fully face risk and to put long-term benefits ahead of short-term gain. Uh, we're not so good at it as human beings. And I would say as human beings, we're, we take chances a lot. And uh, this COVID-19 response uh, has been a little tortured as, as the reality of the risk involved has seeped in slowly. And right. I'm not even sure it's reached every corner of the country. So there, I think the fact that, you know, ship safety gets uh, set aside somewhat for profit um, is fundamentally an issue of the human character. I hate to make it that global, but it uh, seems uh, like it. Oh, it, it, it very much so is. I mean, you know, the human aspect of endeavors, whether it's, you know, Chernobyl or Three Mile Island or coronavirus um, and, and shipping, if you don't, if, if the people in charge don't understand the depth of how human behavior influences decision making, and we don't train ourselves to be, to understand risk, to understand how to, to counter risk and how to implement procedures and processes and training to reduce risk and then to believe in math 
and science and physics and mother nature that those effects cannot be um, diminished or cast aside. You know, right. math and physics and science, they're, they're there. And you can't say to Mother Nature, oh, I'm going to pretend that storm won't hit us. And uh, so we'll be okay. Um, when I was in the Army, we had chap- I had a chaplain once in my unit who said to me, you know, hope is a great thing to have when you're in church. But when you go into combat, you can't use hope as your plan. You can't say, well, I hope the enemy won't shoot us, or I, I hope we don't get killed today. You got to have a, a legitimate, real plan. So I, I think in our in the maritime world, in our life, if you're a boat operator, you're the captain, you're the guy in charge, You, you a good one will face reality and won't be intimidated by other people's needs for emotional or short-term satisfaction. And you, you'll know how to analyze situations and come up with the appropriate response. Uh, well, and I just want to jump in here because I think, um, I mean, I, I obviously agree with everything that's been said. And it's obviously, Peter, a, 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 care, a human character flaw here where we do as individuals take risk and then the overall public risk pool, we have to have a Coast Guard. We have to have a whole entity that's designed to go out and save your ass because yeah. you put yourself out there. <laughs> I mean, we know there's going to be idiots out there. Yeah. And uh, so, but, uh, you know, I'm reminded of our conversation about lobster fishing equipment. And when it comes to us getting better at the way that we practice um, our maritime activities, be they recreational or commercial, I think that it's important that the government can step in and ease the transition in terms of the costs of either um, technological upgrades, as would be the case with the fishing equipment, or in the case of, uh, you know, uh, compliance with fire. You, you talked about fire foam and um, th- these various systems, you know, there should be grants available and, and people, you know, th- we need to draw a hard line there. It seems to me, uh, for safety reasons and, um, you know, it obviously sucks to be told that you can't go out on your boat, but, uh, especially I guess if you're a commercial person and you you're running a fishing boat and it's time is money and you got to bring the boat out for a, uh, additional work. I'm sure that that is hard news to to take. But uh, I mean, come on, other industries handle this stuff. Um, we should be able to figure it out. We should. And I, you know, I lived in Maine for a while. I taught at Maine Maritime Academy. Lived in Castine. And I, an example of what you're talking about is you take Maine lobstermen. Um, they're very independent uh, group of people. They're they're they like to do their job and they don't want other people interfering with them and they're fiercely independent. And if you walk down the dock and in your Coast Guard uniform or an inspector uniform saying, I'm going to tell you how to do your job, you're going to immediately get like, you know, go take a hike, buddy. I'm not listening to you. But if you approach some of these industries with, in, the, in, the, in the model of I want to help you. I want to make. I want to do things for you that'll let you come back alive, so your wife won't think that you've, you know, what happened to you? you drowned at sea because you fell overboard. 
I've got some things that will help you and improve your life and be good for you. Give me a few minutes to talk to you about inflatable PFDs and demonstrate to you that this will not interfere with your work. And this is a manly thing to do. Um, and, and I'm here to help. But for so long, people have gotten in their minds that regulations are onerous, that they prevent you from doing what you want to do. And in this country, sometimes we have this view of government as being a bad thing. And I, I don't know where that came from, because most of my life I've worked in the government. And I, I, I don't understand that, because if you ever meet a civic employee, they always want to do the right thing for society. You don't have people, civil servants, who are like going to work saying, how can I make it hard for someone to do their job? They're trying to make it better. And I, so a lot of this is perspective and how we approach people. But I agree with you. We, we should make efforts to um, have people understand that this is going to help them not just be a, 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 a nuisance. Yeah. Hey, Tyler, do you remember, and I, uh, we, we had on the show uh, when we were at the Atlantic Intercoastal Waterway Association meeting, uh, the owner's husband and wife team of Biblia Inc., which was a tugboat company in right. the Savannah, Georgia area. Uh, really one of the most interesting, one of the many interesting conversations we had. But the the husband and wife team, the wife's responsibility was Coast Guard safety compliance. And she talked about as an independent, small commercial, uh, you know, tugboat company that the complexity of the regulations and how hard it was and their initial resistance to them. And uh, I just remember her saying, you know, I was a, I was a, I, I trained teachers and I, and I was a teacher and I thought, you know what, I'm just going to have to learn all of these rules that the Coast Guard asks of us. I'm going to have to ask for help when I don't know what these things mean or what to do. And I think Tyler, you asked her at the end. You said, "Was you know, how did it turn out? Did you do you feel like it made a difference in in your operations?" And she she said she she said, "You know, they were great to work with. Once I quit fighting with them, I think um, uh, she said, you know, we we keep a lot more records. We the logs of the systems on the ship are maintained. Our equipment is better." And she said, "Some of our captains liked that. Some of them." had to leave because they simply didn't want to be involved in a regulatory structure. They wanted to be, you know, do it the way they've always done it kind of at it too. But what, what strikes me about that, um, that story you told Michael about the main lobsterman was that the effectiveness of safety uh, is so much depends on the personal relationship and the personal skill of the inspector you know, right. to, to know how to reach somebody. And how, how, are, how are our Coast Guard inspectors doing? I mean, are they trained in this? I mean, wh- what's your assessment? Are we, are we, yeah. are so, we getting better or yeah, worse? That's a great, yeah, that's a great question. I, I, and it's come up recently quite often. In, in, in days, in decades before now, you could go into the Coast Guard and be an inspector for your whole life. And you would, that's what your job would be. And you would be a master of the regulations. You'd understand them. You would know the merchant industry. And you would build, as you said, you would build relationships with companies and individuals. And most of these lifelong inspectors 
saw themselves as um, educators and were more than happy, and it still goes on today, but more than happy to help the, the operators and the vessel and the companies understand the rules and comply with them because they were they were there for a purpose. And so there were there was healthy relationships and the inspectors because they were knowledgeable and carried authority but were helpful. When they said to our company, you know what, you need to replace the gaskets on that that boiling water separator, that they would do it. Because they go, you know, he wouldn't tell us to do it if it didn't need to be done and he's right. But nowadays, in the last, I don't know, decade or so, a lot of Coast Guard inspectors, at least long term, they've they've retired. And now the Coast Guard rotates people through more frequently. And you get a lot of young people coming in that inspection is not going to be their full career. They're going to do it for a while and move on to something else. And they're going to get, you know, detailed to do law enforcement and be a uh, be a deck watch officer and then inspection and um, they don't have the time they're not given the time nor the training to become an expert in that field and so now that personal relationship that understanding of the depth of it is not is not always there and so operators if they're new to coast guard inspections they don't start off at the first meeting is not you know it's like your blind first blind date. <laughs> if it's not, if it doesn't come out making you feel good, then that sort of sets the it can set the tone for further, uh, you know, for what goes on that, for year after year. Um, and that's a huge part of this because when you look at the Code of Federal Regulations and you read through what's required, it, it's these are legal documents that. It takes a while. You can't just flip them open and go, oh, yeah, I got to do this and this. They're very detailed. They often re- refer to other publications. A lot of the firefighting regulations refer to other National Fire Protection Association or OSHA regulations. It can get complicated. But if, if you accept the fact that the purpose for this is to protect lives and property and to make us all better – the Coast Guard will help you. They're not going to just arbitrarily say, well, you're dumb and we're going to fine you because you can't figure it out. They've never done that. Um, but I'm glad to hear the story about the, that couple because that's the way it should be. They should understand it. And if people don't want to comply with it, then that's good. They should move on to some other occupation where they don't feel like they're being put upon. But um, I don't think they're being put upon. They're they're you know, we don't want people drowning at sea and we don't want ships sinking and um, we can prevent it. Well, I love it. And I think there's an aspirational element here that all of our uh, beach managers and people who represent the government and uh, are trying to keep people safe and do a good job for the constituents they serve would absolutely uh raise a glass uh, as it were to uh that sentiment michael um i want to just turn uh turn the subject a little bit uh one of the things that by the way everyone should follow michael carr on facebook or, or uh in social media good follow you post some you post some uh some hot takes on there and one of the <laughs> yes, one of the trends yeah <laughs> One of the trends I've been noticing is that you've got some uh, you've you've had some things to say about our uh, coastal, littoral, amphibious style 
of uh, equipment and our operational preparedness. And um, a while back, you posted about uh, Hurricane Maria in the Bahamas and how that could have been an opportunity to really not only help the people there, but hone our uh, skills. So take it away. What are your thoughts here okay. on, on this stuff? All right. So the, the, the big picture here is that operations in the littoral environment or amphibious world where the ocean meets the land, that little 10-foot transition from you're in the water and now you're on the land is one of the most difficult uh, uh, fields of endeavor to put a put pe- equipment and people from an ocean environment onto the land takes a tr- tremendous amount of training, preparation, understanding of physics and oceanography and weather and tides and currents and vessel operations. And during World War II, the United States, anyone that's a fan of history and and uh, knows what the U.S. went through in figuring. Oh out yeah, let's how let's go over it. To- I'm a huge fan. Yeah. Okay, so, you know, in the um, World War II in a nutshell, uh, when we first went into North Africa uh, and we're fighting the Germans in North Africa, we did not know how to make landing amphibious landings. And we, we thought we could just run a boat up on the beach and that was it. So we had all sorts of problems with boats capsizing and broaching and running aground and can't get stuff off. And, and, and the throughput, I want to throw out that word, throughput, is that you not only have to land on the beach with a bunch of stuff, but you have to be get it off the beach and inland because if it's more than one boat, there's another boat behind you that is waiting for you to get your job done. And if the the sand on the beach is too soft or there's hills and rocks and uh, uh, obstacles uh, off the beach and you can't move inland, then you're stuck on the beach. And so like people stopping in a doorway, if you don't, keep moving. No one else is going to get through. So the whole amphibious thing is not only landing on the beach properly, getting your stuff off the boat onto the beach, but getting it off the beach and inland and dispersed to where it needs to go. It takes a huge amount of coordination and planning and equipment and uh, teamwork. So we didn't, we, we didn't really know how to do that. And we we learned it in the Mediterranean, in North Africa, and, and Italy, and uh, in Sicily, and we finally started working things out. We went into the Pacific, and you know we had some Marine Corps operations in the Pacific where uh, the Marines were stuck on the beach, and their boats ran aground because we didn't know the tides, and some horrible battles where the Japanese really uh, took a toll on us. But we started figuring it out, and we built landing craft, and by the time the Normandy invasion came in in D-Day and and we to land in France, we really had figured a lot of this out, but it 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 took years, uh, and that's why the Normandy invasion, why Eisenhower didn't want to do it till he knew we could do it, because you only get one chance and you go you blow it and you'll never get another chance. So uh, it's very complicated. So you fast forward ahead, then World War II is over. No one wants to think about it anymore, and we we tend to go towards big ships sailing back and forth from one developed port to another developed port where there's big piers and wharfs and cranes and it's easy to offload and load vessels and we never think about beaches ever again. And then we get into this modern age where we're having not only military operations that involve landings in 
undeveloped areas, but we have humanitarian aid operations. So now go to go to the Bahamas and Hurricane Maria. Hurricane Maria comes through Category 5, 200 mile an hour winds, wipes out uh, the northern Bahama Islands. There's, there's this massive need for help for uh, humanitarian aid, doctors, food, especially water and shelter for these people. But there's no ports. The, 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 the northern Bahamas had very small ports, and they, they used landing craft, small civilian landing craft to move stuff back and forth. And now that infrastructure, the, the small infrastructure is there, is gone. And so we should have, this is my opinion now, we, we should have um, taken the massive capability that the U.S. military has in, uh, on along the East Coast because the Army has a dozen 174-foot, uh, what are called LCUs, landing craft utility, 174-foot landing craft designed I, for doing that sort of operation to go up on beaches and shallow water and undeveloped areas with whatever supplies you need. And they can carry a tremendous am- amount on their cargo decks. And we could have gone in there and helped, but we didn't. We left it all up to the civilian uh, people who were then – and if you read back to the newt, there was this huge clamoring for how are we going to get aid ashore? Now, some people say, oh, you just airlift it. But airlifting, there's no runways in the northern Bahamas. There was no airports. There was no way. And aircraft are not capable of carrying the tonnage per per sortie, per flight, that a, a landing craft can. You can have a helicopter carry you know, a couple pallets of water, whereas a landing craft, you got 500 tons of water. So... I, I felt that we should have we should be massing our capabilities not only for military operations but for humanitarian operate humanitarian operations because one it's the right thing to do morally and ethically it's what we as a country should do to aid people when they have needs but as a secondary it also trains us so that in military operations we are proficient and good but the military tends, and I was in the Army, so I don't have any reservation about saying this. We tend to say, oh, no, 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 that's not a job. We're waiting for the next war to start. We'll be ready when the next war starts, and then we'll carry ammunition. And my, mm-hmm. my attitude has always been, no, our job is to, is to serve the needs of the nation, whether it's carrying Red Cross doctors and Red Cross equipment or ammunition we should do if we can add and we can do this job then we should do it and um i think that's where we need a corporate culture change um and we should be more uh we should be more forward thinking and we shouldn't be so restrained in how we respond wow uh, Michael, I don't know. Are you on the ballot anywhere? Because I want to vote for you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that was so well said <laughs> and articulated uh, a quality of American character and understanding and ethical, moral behavior that, man, I'm telling you, that is so refreshing. Can I could, yeah, run for something. I'll, I'll move yeah. so I can register to vote. <laughs> Because, you know, and I, um, in seriousness, I think what you and Tyler are talking about is absolutely true, which is that the folks who think that public servants are a bunch of, as which I think is the most pejorative statement you can make, a bunch of federal bureaucrats. I hear that a lot. I heard it when I worked in the state government uh, in Texas, um, and it pisses me off. Uh, 
the people that I know who who work in public service, the vast majority are superior people. Uh, and I feel that way about the NOAA scientists and the federal agencies, particularly. I, I do say NOAA is my favorite federal agency. I actually have one. Uh, the quality of the science, the quality of the thinking and planning. There's a there's a big military influence in NOAA uh, at the command level. I mean, these are people who know how to think and tackle tough, complex problems. And uh, they, so I really yeah. I, I appreciate you putting a plug in for the public servants in America because right. I, I think they're well deserved. Yeah. Well, I, I'm. Thank you. And I say that a lot because um, when having served in the Coast Guard and then in the Merchant Marine and then in the Army. And during one year of my time in the Coast Guard, I served at Coast Guard headquarters in Washington, D.C. And I had I interfaced with NOAA and the EPA and a lot of other federal agencies in which there was um, a lot of um, commonality and regulations and things. And I, I always felt in awe of the people I worked with from these other agencies because as you just said they're smart they're intelligent they're not there because they're going to make lots of money they're that the work hours and the benefits are not as great as they would be in the civilian world the people that work for the government they 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 sack i mean they voluntarily do this for the public good and they're hard-working people that will go above and beyond and i i agree when i hear people diminish and say government bureaucrats this that and the other thing i go well you obviously have never worked in the government and you obviously don't understand how dedicated these people are um and how complex and also i think people don't understand often how complicated it is to run a society to make the roads and ports and healthcare and trains and all of that stuff work day in and day out it doesn't magically happen and i I get frustrated with people when they think that that's – I said, you've never been to a third world country, obviously, and you've obviously never gone out of your neighborhood because you really don't understand what it takes <laughs> right. to make all this work. So. Right. Very, very true. Well, uh, uh, Michael and Peter, uh, I we, we've got about an hour, and uh, here's the deal. We're all at our various homes uh, and we're, we're kind of locked down around the country. Some of us are some of our listeners I know are in New York City or San Francisco or wherever you may be. Uh, I think I thought that it would be a good idea to do a little PT, a little physical training with <laughs> yes. uh, with our commander today, Michael Carr. Uh, Michael, take us through a, a you You've been at ship. I've been at sea rather on on uh, vessels where there's not a lot of room uh, right. to you know it's not it's not like being on land you're you're more limited in space but you're still able to get your workout in uh, and stay in shape so what do you recommend from a uh, kind of a health and wellness perspective now as our listeners around the country adjust to the COVID era in terms of staying in their homes yes so okay I'm really glad you asked this of all the topics we talked about. This is probably my favorite. <laughs> so um, I, before talking about like any specific exercises, the first thing, first few things I want to say is whatever you do, it, it has to be 
what you want to do, not what your roommate wants to do or what some website says or some personal trainer says, oh, you should do this. And it's something that you're going to enjoy doing and is you're going to want to do it because if it's some complicated workout routine that you have to look at a piece of paper and, oh, did I do six of these or two of those? And you got to do this for 20 minutes and that, but you're never going to do it. It's going to become a chore. It's going to become a pain. It, you, you're going to say, oh my God, uh, forget it. So it, it's got to be what you want to do. And it's got to be really uncomplicated. And I'll give you an example. Pull-ups are a great exercise. They're good for your arms. They're good for your upper body. They're good for your core. If you put a pull-up bar, and you can buy pull-up bars that go in your doorway. If you're in your house, for example, you can get these pull-up bars that just go over the, uh, uh, the, the sill, not the sill, but the header of your doorway. And you put a pull-up bar in a doorway, and then you say to yourself, you know, every time I go through that doorway, I'm going to stop and do a pull-up. And you, you just, or I'm going to hang for 10 seconds. Or I'll start out in the morning, and I'll do one every time I go through, and then I'll do two, and then I'll do three. And you come up with just make-believe stuff to do. Right away, you're getting exercise, and it's not a pain. And before you know it, you're doing you know, 20 or 30 pull-ups a day, and you don't even know it. You, you should also, you don't need to have complicated machines. You don't need to have you know, a $3,000 treadmill or something. You can do push-ups. You can do sit-ups. You can use hand weights. You can take the long way around the neighborhood when you're walking to the store or something. You can go to your garage. So these days, I live in Florida in my garage, I have a little setup and I have some free weights and a pull-up bar and kettlebells and hand weights. And I go out there most every day and I don't have a set routine. I put my headphones on, I put a podcast on and I go, I'm going to work out for an hour till I've broken a sweat until I all my body feels tired and I'll do squats and I'll see something on the internet that said, oh, you should try doing more planks. So one day I might do planks and the next day I'll say, I'm really into sit-ups today. I'm just going to do a hundred sit-ups. And if you just do that, it, it it's more important to do something and break a sweat than to agonize over, is this the right one or not? And the last thing I'll say is there's a lot of things you can build into your daily life. If you have a house with a second floor, going up and down stairs is a great exercise. So if you're on a conference call or something, or you're, you're thinking about stuff, walk up and down the stairs, just go up and down the stairs, up and down the stairs. And pretty soon, you know, you've gotten great leg exercise. Um, and you don't have to track it. I, I, in fact, I wouldn't track it. I would just like do it. And when you're sweat, you know how you don't, you're doing it well, you're sweating and you're feeling tired and your mental health is better and and then you will keep doing it and that's what i did on ship i just found ways to do stuff that broke a sweat that felt good and i felt like man i'm gonna pass the pt test when we get into port um and i found that works so anyway that's my that's what i would do for <laughs> pt damn it michael i've got to tell you if, if we all listen to you this would be a better country i mean first of all <laughs> we'd all be weird <laughs> Everybody would I'm be wearing sure their damn that. personal <laughs> flotation device. People would quit falling off boats drunk and drowning because that would because yeah. would well if we it, would you know, we would better it, understand yeah. risk. We would better prepare. We would be more thoughtful and willing to confront difficult challenges. Uh, we wouldn't put money first, and right. damn it, we'd be in better shape. I mean, I'm I, I'm telling you. <laughs> 
there's a there, there's an agenda there that I really like. Well, I you know it's my little contribution or to the greater good, or at least an attempt to contribute to the greater good. So, well, there's one last thing, Tyler, that you mentioned, and I, I don't even know uh, you'll have to take this over because I but it had to do with kayaks, and I wasn't even sure what the topic. Oh was. yeah, you, <laughs> what was that about? Take it away, Michael. Oh, yeah, so here's the thing. I see Coast Guard search and rescue reports every day, and there's a constant uh, uh, a constant stream of abandoned or, uh, or kayaks that are just floating that the Coast Guard or someone comes across and they, they're not marked and there's no identification on it. And, and the Coast Guard then has to initiate a search because when someone's, hey, I see this kayak floating in the St. Lucie Inlet, well, the Coast Guard has to assume that somebody was in it and they fell out and now we got to go look for them. But many times the kayak is washed off a person's beach, it was being towed behind a boat and it came loose, uh, a million things, and, or, and there's nobody there to go look for. But the Coast Guard spends hours of fuel and, and boats and helicopters searching for someone. And then they, they either suspend the search because they, they don't find anyone and it, it, you know, it's been a day or more, or someone then uh, says, oh yeah, that's my green kayak, it washed off my beach. Well, if people would just mark the kayak, put their name and phone number on it, when they buy it, then when the Coast Guard or, or some other boater finds it and says, I got a kayak, it says Michael Carr, uh, 772, blah, 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 they would call and say, hey, Michael, where's your kayak? I go, oh, it floated off my beach. They go, okay, well, come back to the Coast Guard station, you can have it back, and it's done. But people don't do that, and the paddle and the kayak manufacturers don't make them so that the name can be put on it. And psychologically, there seems to be something about people that they don't want to label their kayaks. And the Coast Guard Auxiliary provides um, these uh, decals you can put on there that you can write your name on and your phone number, but it's difficult to get hold of them because you got to track right. down a Coast Guard auxiliary person and then they want to come give you their little presentation, nothing against them. But I just want the damn decal, you know? Look, and, yeah, come on, come on. This is not about an overbearing big brother right. government trying to tell you to register your kayak. It's exactly. just quite simply a, uh, it seems like it would be a, a, it's just a good citizen thing to do Right. To put your uh, the owner's name and contact information on these really small craft because the Coast Guard, yes. even though it's not a big a big vessel, you know, it still is some. It's a it's a vessel that the Coast Guard will like come out and investigate. Right. That's kind of crazy. People, yeah, and people, I don't think people understand that when their kayak is just floating around and they and they think, oh, it's not a big deal. I'll buy another one. It is a big deal because the Coast Guard has doesn't have a choice. The Coast Guard, they're not mind readers, and so they see the kayak floating. What, what do you want them to do? Say, oh, well, just leave it there. No, they're going to say someone's life could be in danger, and they'll launch a search, and they'll launch a search every single time using a huge amount of resources when it, it's not necessary. Um, so, yeah, I, the public service message for me is, Put your name on your kayak, put your phone number, put a second phone number, put information so people can call and find out what the deal is. Uh, right. And that, that everyone should do that. 
And if you don't answer the phone, they'll get the helicopter and go look for you. But <laughs> at least they have a chance to save yes. taxpayers a boatload of money because you've, you know, been irresponsible right. with your boat. Yeah. I'm, I'm with you. Um, ladies and gentlemen, it's Michael Carr. And I'm going to, Michael, I don't know if you were a captain in the Coast Guard, but I'm going to call you a captain. Okay, <laughs> so I'll, I'll take it. <laughs> you've definitely got rank in this conversation. Uh, Michael Carr, former Coast Guard officer, merchant mariner uh, in the United States Army, uh, teacher at Maritime Academies around the country, and an all around just, you know, one of the great characters of the American shoreline, uh, someone who's invested their life in thinking about about the water and what we do on the coast. I mean, just thanks a lot. I really, really enjoyed it. Tyler, thanks a lot for setting this up. I was totally dug it. Yeah, P- yeah, Peter and Tyler, I really appreciate having the time to talk to you. And uh, it was, um, thank you. Thank you very much. Birds on the long sun,